0: August 4th, 1914. The British composer Edward Elgar and his family had gone on vacation to northwestern Scotland. Their vacation home was so remote that they didn't hear the news until a friend sent them a telegram. Britain had declared war on Germany. The Elgars tried to get home, but they couldn't even find a train for a week because all public transportation had been cancelled to enable troop movement across the island. It was a small foretaste of how normal life was about to change for good. Ultimately, his experience of the war would inspire Elgar to write one of his most beloved works. But it was also the last large-scale work he ever wrote, before he lost the heart to compose. I'm Sineva Kali. Welcome to Cello Century, where we reflect back on the heartache and the beauty of the 20th century, as heard through five of the great modern cello concertos. The cello is often compared to the human voice. It has a huge range from low bass notes, all the way to piercing high notes that can rival a coloratura soprano. It's widely admired for its warm, lyrical tone. Maybe that's why composers have often been drawn to this instrument, to write music that's deeply personal, even psychologically profound. We're going to hear music about war, imprisonment, hope, loss, and light. In each episode, we'll also talk to a cellist about why they love this music and what they experience when they perform it. This week's guest is international soloist Imbal Segev, who's releasing a new recording of the Elgar Concerto in June.
1: He wrote it as an elegy, it's an elegy to humanity, and uh, he was mourning the way of life that will never come back, really, just after the First World War. And uh, that innocence that is lost, you know, there's so much pain there.
0: Edward Algar was born in 1857. In many ways he was a Victorian, although he didn't reach his greatest prominence as a composer until the reign of Edward VII. The Edwardian era, which lasted from the turn of the century until the onset of the First World War, has been regarded as a season of pleasure-seeking and leisure in Great Britain, at least for those who could afford it. The worldwide power of the British Empire had not yet begun to crumble. speaking, the Victorians and the Edwardians were businessmen, not artists. They imported most of their music from Europe, and in fact England was sometimes called the land without music because they hadn't produced their own significant national composer in centuries. A lot of Elgar's music reflects Edwardian culture. It's refined, opulent, and ceremonial. To be perfectly honest, there's a lot of his music that I don't really connect with it reflects the values of a different time. But there was another side to Elgar. He wasn't a poster child for success. He had actually struggled in obscurity for years before he finally received recognition as a composer in middle age. He had a thorny personality. He was cynical, moody and sometimes resentful. One of his colleagues described him as a self-divided and secretly unhappy man. For me, the music of Elgar that speaks most authentically is the music that combines his lush orchestrations and grandiose style with the side of him that is human and riddled with self-doubt. Although he rarely explained exactly what his music was about, He often alluded to writing his own feelings and experiences into his works. One example is the Enigma Variations, in which each variation represents a beloved friend or family member. Elgar biographer Michael Kennedy compares the composer to his contemporary James Barry, the creator of Peter Pan. Kennedy says, If there is an Edwardian characteristic which united some of the outstanding English writers, poets, and musicians of that era, it was not a dream of empire, but a desire to escape into an idealized childhood as if the real world was too painful. When the war broke out, it agonized and aged Elgar. He was a great lover of nature, and when he first heard the news of war, he became strangely fixated on the suffering of animals. He wrote, I walk round and round this room, cursing God for allowing dumb brutes to be tortured. He signed up for the reserves, but he never went to the battlefront. Instead, he spent the war traveling all over the country conducting war music, mostly marches and choral works designed to lift the spirits of the public. At one performance of his work, The Spirit of England, it was noted that almost every member of the choir had lost a close relative or friend to the war. Elgar was often ill during the war, including a bout with the influenza pandemic in 1916. That same year, he wrote to a friend, Everything pleasant and promising in my life is dead. I feel more alone and the prey of circumstances than ever before." After Germany surrendered in November 1918, Elgar was asked to write music to a poem called Peace, but he refused the commission. He wasn't ready to speak about the war in any terms of closure. He took special issue with the poem's Appeal to the Heavenly Spirit, whom Elgar described as cruelly obtuse to individual sorrow and sacrifice, a cruelty I resent bitterly and disappointedly. The work he did write, just a few months later, was his cello concerto. The concerto is distinct from Elgar's other works in its pervasive language of loss and pain. The structure is unusual. Instead of a typical exposition-and-development-type form, it's highly rhetorical, with the cello often speaking in a free recitation style. Even the way Elgar starts the concerto is striking. Consider the fact that in the famous Dvorak cello concerto, the orchestra plays for three and a half minutes before the soloist even comes in. In the Elgar concerto, you can feel the urgency of the cello entering immediately with barely any orchestral accompaniment. I love the beginning. <laughs> the
1: opening is great. Um, and that scale going up it always gives me bumps. There's humanity, Um, there is uh, a real sense of, um, yeah, just, it's a personal, humane uh, concerto in a way. Shostakovich is more alienated. Um, Schumann is very personal, but uh, the Elgar is kind of bigger than life and yet very human.
0: The main theme of the first movement is a dreamy, almost discolored melody in 9-8 meter. The melody doesn't start on the main tonic note of E minor, instead it starts on the second scale degree, which gives this melody an unanchored or wandering quality. Later on in the movement, it will start on the main note of E, and that will give it a sense of greater confidence and intensity. In the middle of the movement, Elgar introduces a contrasting theme in E major. To me, the sunnier key evokes the feeling of a happy memory. The first theme returns to close out the movement. Here we would normally expect a pause and then a complete change of character to lead us into the second movement. Instead, Elgar transitions immediately, bringing back the opening chords from the first movement. Here we have one of several wonderful monologues for the cello. The soloist repeatedly tries on the theme of the second movement, but hesitates again and again. Finally, the cello takes off in a mercurial, perpetual motion. the composer's wife Alice called this theme diddle diddle, based on the sounds she heard coming from his music room when he was working on it. It's light and fanciful, with some moments of sincerity.
1: I love that every movement has a real distinct character. You have the pathos, you have the virtuosity and the lightness of the second movement, and you have the drama and the bigness of the last movement. And then, of course, it comes back full circle, so you feel like it's, a, it's alive.
0: In this movement, you can really hear the skill of the composer in balancing the cello with all the other instruments of the orchestra. Elgar does this seemingly effortlessly by keeping the orchestra lacy and light underneath the soloist.
1: The polyphony is really not not there so much. Uh, it's more about the line of the cello carrying the room, And you, uh, also the protagonist, the cellist, doesn't have to fight with the orchestra to be heard. We're not so much coming from within the orchestra, we're kind of floating on top of soloists. And I think that's easier.
0: The third movement is simple in its structure. It's just one long yearning melody. When I listen to this movement, I wonder if Elgar did find a way to write about peace. Or maybe this movement is the wish of someone who wants to feel peace.
1: This is really the, the slow movement, the third, um, where you have to somehow connect the line without uh, kind of falling between the dots. It's uh, you have to be slow and yet have that line. So, just controlling vibrato colors and controlling the pacing—that's really, really hard.
0: The third movement would stand completely alone if it weren't for the final chord, a dominant which leaves us hanging, waiting for resolution. The fourth movement begins with a hard-edged, militaristic theme. But we've barely had a chance to hear this theme when the cello enters with yet another of its soliloquies, my favorite one. I love the way it turns this strong rhythmic melody into a pressing set of questions. Elgar even sneaks in a little bit of material from the beginning of the concerto. back in tempo, and the movement carries on with relentless momentum. The cello briefly inserts a second theme that contrasts in mood, and also takes flight with bariolage and other technical showmanship. But the threatening drama of the main theme always returns. Before we know it, something unexpected starts to happen. The music gradually unwinds, getting slower and slower, until eventually Elgar leads us all the way back to the theme from the third movement. And from here, Everything about this concerto changes. We've stopped moving forward, and instead, we're casting back to remember other parts of the concerto. It's as if we haven't fully escaped from any of our previous experiences. But now the old themes have new meaning because of what we've been through. For me, this is the magic of the Elgar Concerto. The opening chords are iconic, of course, but to listen to the entire work is to go on a journey. The opening chords get transformed again and again, and they mean something different every time. Of course what they mean is really up to you, the listener. Finally, Elgar releases us from our memories, and the concerto streaks away to a fiery close. Elgar never finished another large-scale work after the cello concerto. In the wake of the war, and in the changing culture of the 20s, he felt out of place. Not least of all, in his music he had been greatly inspired by German composers, but now the younger generation insisted on casting off all German influence. Elgar never really found his creative voice again. Instead, he retired into a quiet life of recreation, surrounded by nature in the countryside. Thanks for joining me today. I also want to thank our guest, Imbal Segev. Be on the lookout for her recording of the Elgar Concerto, being released in June. That recording also features a new work written for her by Anna Klein. Next week, optimism and open-heartedness in FDR's America. Join me for Samuel Barber's Cello Concerto, written in the final year of World War II. And meanwhile, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss any of the great music that's coming your way.